good morning again. I hope that you've had a blessed week. Um, it's good to hear a lot of the praise reports this morning. Kind of different. It's not as many prayer requests, even though I know that there's still some that are out there, but it's good to, to focus on praises every once in a while. Um, enjoyed the, the music today. I love Heart of Worship. It's a wonderful song, um, especially if you know the backstory behind that with Matt Redman, where he pretty much just, as the music director said, okay, we're going to be done singing for a while at our church because you guys are making this too much into a performance. So through that series of fasting, so to speak, from music, that's the song that came out of it, kind of going back to the minor prophets and coming back to the heart of worship. Not making it about us or a performance or the instruments or anything like that, but just about Jesus and what he has done. So again, just a, a wonderful time of, of worship this morning. Now we are coming off of an important message uh, last week that kind of dictates a little bit of where we're going to be heading into this week uh, in our series with Luke, continuing to follow this last five days of Jesus' life leading up to his crucifixion. As he came into Jerusalem, he headed to the temple, he began to preach, uh, and he was questioned about his authority, right? Uh, his answer for the, base, uh, f uh, for the basis of his authority comes from God, you know, and that's kind of where we want to understand through what Jesus is going to be saying in the few, coming few messages that his authority comes from the Lord. Um, and this week we're going to address two more questions that are asked of Jesus. You know, when we're honest, when we think about our faith, how often do we have questions? I have questions all the time. You know, not just about faith, but life in general. But, you know, we, we have questions, and normally we go to places of authority. And as Jesus has just said when we discussed last week about how he has authority, how his authority is given to, to him by God, we want to go to him with our questions. You know, when we think about it, a lot of our questions deal with, especially around the faith aspects, deal with how things work. How do the things of heaven work? How do the things of earth work? Do they, do they align with each other? Do they mingle? Is one greater than the other? All of those types of things. And then it gets nuanced into the specifics. So we continue to wrestle through some of these questions that we have. Today we're going to dive into those questions, uh, how to understand them biblically, uh, when we're surrounded by a world that wants us to understand them worldly. You know, questions that I think that are important for our faith as we move forward. Hopefully we can put this into to proper perspective as Jesus gives some teaching on this for us. So unfortunately, I did not email Paul my PowerPoint slides, so there's not going to be any slides today. But uh, if you have your Bibles, you can join me in Luke chapter 20. We're going to begin in verse 19 today and then read through verse 40. All right, verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on Jesus, or lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he has told this parable against them, but they feared the people. 
So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authorities and the jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak that what you speak and teach, or sorry, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they, were not, and they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the, for the seven had her as a wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die any more, because they are equals to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. Father, I pray that you would focus our hearts and minds today, help us to uh, understand questions that we have and how to appropriately and properly take them to you. Lord, teach us the ways of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so in a normal year, this week we would have passed April 15th, which is tax day. But there's extensions with COVID and everything else, but taxes, it's always a fun subject, isn't it? This year we've had some discussions within CC. Uh, we talked about the American Revolution and how a three-cent tax on a pound of tea helped spur the events of the Boston Tea Party and the Revolutionary War. Three cents. Now, obviously, things were boiling over, but three cents. Then you think about today. Because we're also studying economics, and they have to do a cost-of-living project. What would it cost to live on your own at 23 years old independently? And then you get to teach them about taxes and how much you have to pay in taxes. It's always a wonderful subject, isn't it? Benjamin Franklin, you know his quote, Nothing in, in this life is certain except death and taxes. So this first exchange that Jesus has here with these people, it's about his loyalties. It's about his nationalism. It's kind of a catch-22 as these people are sent in as spies, kind of undercover. They use flattery to, to butter him up a little bit. 
in order to try to trap him with his answers, have a gotcha moment that they can go back against him on. But you know, as we slow down a little bit, again, we want to try to connect our contexts. We have to connect it to the prior passage. You know, this exchange is brought about because of that previous parable where the, the leaders then want to get their hands on Jesus. And it's not like they want to rub his shoulders and give him a massage. It's, I want to wring your neck type of attitude. They want to be rid of this person because he is, he is challenging their authorities. You know, and they, so they're watching him. They're sending spies. And in that first part, we see why. They're trying to catch him so that they can give him over to the authorities to the jurisdiction of the governor. Remember last week we talked about their authority. They have a leadership position, but more often than not, they're relying on the authority of Rome. They're wanting Rome to take care of Jesus for them. So it's kind of a pseudo-authority that they're living out. Um, but this issue, again, it falls into the, the issue of loyalty. And where does that lie with Jesus and his life? And we see what Jesus says here as the answer. But let's look at a little bit more context. Flip over to Luke 23. Verse 1 and 2. Now this is as Jesus is before Pilate. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. And saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Is that what Jesus said? So here we see blatantly that they're mischaracterizing, they're lying, they're demonizing Jesus ahead of these authorities to try to get him killed. The early Christians likewise would suffer similar fates. False accusations being made against them. So they're thrown to the lions, they're thrown into the gladiator arenas. But here, we see what Jesus actually teaches in Luke 20. He doesn't teach hostility towards the government. Even though he knows by week's end, he's going to be put to death by that government. Now, this type of question, this type of mischaracterization, can be increasingly difficult for us as Christians in this nation. Depending on your pastor, some pastors will preach pacifism. Some will say, defend, fight tooth and nail. I say you kind of follow the conviction that the Lord has put on you. You know, if, if you want to be a pacifist, then be a pacifist. If you're going to conceal carry to defend yourself, you can do so. Fight for the rights that you have, absolutely. But we have to understand that the Lord is the one that's leading us. And we have to understand what's going to happen because there's nothing new under the sun. Today, in many conversations, terms are redefined. Ideologies are conflated, and people are made out to be what they're really not. Who are we loyal to? Are we loyal to the government, to our nation, to the Lord? What ideology? What form of government? Are we only loyal to the government when a certain letter is behind the name? Do we adhere to the regulations that they passed down, especially with COVID? Luckily, we're in a state that has been pretty open. Our governor has exempted churches for the most part, but what if we lived in Michigan? What if we lived in California 
or Canada. More updates from Pastor James Coat, who was jailed for not following the health guidelines in Canada. He was jailed for over a month. His trial comes up in the beginning of May. And it was just announced that the judge is not going to allow... Um, the government basically will not have to prove lockdown procedures as scientific. So they can't use that in his defense. Uh, you know, fighting against types of tyranny. So continue to keep him in prayers as his trial comes up in the beginning of May. You know, they've put up fences around his church. So the church as a whole has begun to meet elsewhere in secret. Um, but you know, as things get more dire, as things like that pass down to America, what are we going to do? Should this concern us? Perhaps. But it's like what we talked about in Sunday school. We shouldn't have fear with this. You know, because as Jesus says earlier in Luke, do not be afraid of what they can do to the body. Instead, fear the one who after he is killed has the power to cast into hell. Things can make us afraid, sure. But that fear does not overcome us. It does not, make, it's not, it does not become an obsession in our life. Because our hope lies in the Lord. And that's where we get our strength. Instead of fear, I, fear more, I feel more empathy for people. The sad state that our nation is going down. But, you know, we understand that there is going to be a fight ahead of us. And we fight for our rights um, as we're able to. But Jesus here, he brings out this attitude of how to understand loyalties in a stronger way. To make a simple choice is too simplistic. See, Jesus wanted, they wanted Jesus to take a stand on this issue. Was he a zealot? Meaning, was he going to rebel against the government? Because if he was, then they could use that against him. Or was he just going to pay taxes? Was he going to fall in line? They come to him with this flattery. You know, I'm not sure if you get flattered much, but when somebody shouts praises to you and flatters you, you can either think, okay, what do you want? Or you can just soak it all in and, oh, right, and you let your guard down. You know, they're, they're trying to get to that area to where he could let his guard down and say something that they could use against him. But he doesn't play their game. He sees through their craftiness. And he asks for a coin. And he asks about the image on the coin. A coin has two sides, as do many issues that we face in life. Sometimes we think that we're forced into a certain path, but Jesus shows that paying the earthly rulers their due is logical. And it's logical because it is an extension of paying God what is due to him. Again, sometimes we can have this picture painted for us that we have to be within this box or this box. The imagery I like to use is more of spheres. You have the sphere of the earth and the earthly things, and then you have the spiritual sphere on the outside of that, where it's kind of interconnected. There's some superseding things that happen as well, rather than being placed in type of that box. And obviously, when you use imagery, it usually breaks down. But it shows us how our primary allegiance is to God, first and foremost. We see this in Acts chapter 5, verse 29. 
It says, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. So Jesus is saying that we have a duty to our nation and we belong to God. We have a responsibility to live well with both of those loyalties. And when they conflict, we go to the higher one. And we really see this being lived out in Jesus' last week here. As he is being pressed, as he is being lied about, as he is being demonized, he continues to follow the will of God through everything, showing that his way is the best way, even in the face of death. Jesus shows that his answer, he's not really concerned with the political things that are going on. He's not a zealot. Instead, I think he's more concerned with the second part uh, of giving God what is God's. How do you define that? You know, if one of these youth members came up to you and said, I don't understand this passage, would you be able to explain it to them? Just let you sit in awkward silence for a little bit. I like to think of the coin that Jesus used. What image is on the coin? Caesar's. What bears the image of God that we should be giving back to God? What's his? Us, people, the earth, the universe, everything, all the creatures should be giving God his due. That is worship and service. Another place in scripture where both of these types of things are addressed is in 1 Peter chapter 2 uh, from verses 13 through 17. It says, Be subject to the Lord, or sorry, be, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So those are words from 1 Peter. 1 Peter is a book written in the mid to late 60s. Um, just a few years out from when Jerusalem is going to be destroyed by Rome. And here he is saying, honor the emperor. I'm sure that there's conflict going on in Jerusalem and the Jews and Rome at this time. But yet he still says this. He still follows in the path of the rabbi. Now, Jesus' answer here, it marvels these spies these spies, these plants who come in to try to catch him in error, try to trip him up with this flattery, they're marveling at his answer. His, his logic is solid. Silence is all that is left. Last week when he gives his, his parable, he looks directly at them. And I talked about how that look, I could just imagine that look, peering through their soul, stopping them in their tracks. The eyes of God. Now you have the absolute word of God, and the silence is deafening. An exercise for you this week. I want you to think about an attribute of God. Think about his word. Think about something that has caused you to marvel recently. 
Because I think that we need to marvel more in our life. We need to marvel at his word because it renders us speechless. And when we stop speaking so much, we can find some rest, true rest, because we're busy marveling at who he is, what he has said, and what he has done rather than our own difficulties or troubles. What is the last thing that has made you marvel? And this is an exercise, this is an assignment. Share it. Share it with me. Share it with others. Because we need that encouragement. As I've said for too long, we just, we come into this church building and we have our smiles on, we have our masks on, how everything's okay. And we go through this life isolated. Even though we're around people. Hebrews 10 talks about the importance of continuing to meet together as a body. It's to lift each other up. It's to encourage each other in the word. We need more of that encouragement with one another. So share with one another what we marvel at because it can cause that same type of marveling to happen in others' lives as well. After this line of questioning from these spies, Jesus is approached by some Sadducees who come and ask a question about the resurrection. Now, this, this group of people is like a sect of Judaism. Uh, they had some differences in beliefs. The historian Josephus has them kind of popping on the scene during the Maccabean period. This is in between the Testaments. Um, and they had rejected ideas of fate, which was very popular with the Greeks, how fate is controlling everything. The Sadducees kind of moved more towards a free will position in order to put responsibility of evil onto man and not God. But again, the most prominent difference with this group is that they did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe that the soul existed after death or that the body received punishment or reward. Uh, we see here in our passage and also in, in Luke 23 that the resurrection is the listed difference that's in the Bible between these groups. Their opposition, they were in opposition to the Pharisees in a lot of other ways. You know, they stuck to the law of Moses. They, didn't, they rejected all of the extra laws that the Pharisees put on to Moses, and they stuck mainly towards what Moses would say. Um, but you had these definite differences within these two groups of people. Even with these, these two groups both held leaderships, positions, and sat on councils for the Jews. I find that interesting. Some of the background there for Sadducees, for you know, God-fearers, as you would call them in the Old Testament, to show that differences in beliefs have been around a lot longer than we think. Nothing new is under the sun. But again, resurrection... That's their biggest point of difference that's highlighted in the Bible. And we just talked about that Easter Sunday as we walked through the importance of the resurrection, going through 1 Corinthians 15. Um, so this group is coming forward with this question. And they bring forward this hypothetical scenario um, about whose wife will this woman be. Now they're using the law to bring forward this, so let's go back to that context. Turn over to Deuteronomy 25. Put a bookmark here. 
Deuteronomy 25. I'm going to read verses 5 and 6. If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as a wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. Okay, so this is kind of the law that was given by Moses. Um, and we see that they're bringing forward this hypothetical scenario kind of to the extreme. Seven brothers. But, you know, there's, we also have a recording of this in Genesis 38 with Judah and Tamar and how all of that came to be. You know, so even before Moses, you had this understanding. This is a culture that took, it's an honor and shame culture. And, and it was honorable to pass on your family lineage. And you would do that through the sons. So for, for a woman, it's honorable if you gave birth to a son or if it's shameful if you were barren or you didn't give birth to a son because then the family lineage wouldn't be passing down. So this is some of the context and the mindset behind their beliefs and what they're thinking through this time period. And they bring forward this question to, about how the, the family line is going to be carried on and whose wife will she be when this supposed resurrection happens and still have it fit in with the law of Moses. And they're trying to point out how ridiculous, how ridiculous the, body, the bodily resurrection would be uh, when it comes to hypothetical scenarios like this. But just like with the prior question, our logic doesn't always measure up. We like to think of things um, in the earthly sense, and we don't have the strictest understanding of the heavenly ways. You know, you, you read things in Hebrews about how the law, the temple, or the, they're just shadows of the things that are in heavenly places. We think of things of heaven, and we use the words that we have, but again, many times we're just going to be left speechless because the ways of God are higher than the ways of man, and our understandings fall short. I think that to equate the things on earth to the things of heaven kind of belittles God a bit. Obviously, the ways of earth it's just, that's what we know. It's what we've experienced and how, how we can describe things. But I long for that day when our eyes will truly be opened and we will be able to see and understand because that'll be a glorious thing. And Jesus, again, he's going to use logic in a way that will explain this, hopefully, in a way that the Sadducees can understand. And he contrasts the present age with the, the kingdom age to come. People will be resurrected to live um, or they would be resurrected to live in the kingdom. They're going to be called sons of resurrection. They will not marry as men do, nor be given in marriage as women are. They will be like angels, meaning they will be immortal, sons of God. Sons of God is a phrase that's used often in the Old Testament to describe angels. It's used in the New Testament to describe believers. And at the resurrection, we will experience the fullness of what it means to be a son of God, a daughter of God. Um, and, and this type of thing should not be lost on the Sadducees. 
Jesus points out how God addresses himself to Moses and, and tells him what to say to the Israelites. In Exodus 3 through 4-ish, you have God coming to, to Moses in the burning bush saying who he is. And then Moses asking, who do I say that you are? And he repeats this same phrasing. And then he tells it to the, the Israelites. And then he tells the same thing to Pharaoh. Defining who God is with this same phrasing that is used right here by Jesus. That I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. That's what he tells Moses in Exodus 3.6. Now the patriarchs had died, and yet God is still the God of them. How could that be? Now this could be interpreted by the Sadducees that God is constant, that he always is, was, and will be. That's probably how they understand that text. But the, un, but the Sadducees should understand more of what Jesus is saying. You know, Jesus is using this as a simple proof, but there's other areas in the Old Testament that talk about the resurrection. Isaiah 26, 19 says, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Daniel 12, 2 says, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. The same line of thinking is carried off into the New Testament with 1 Corinthians 15, but also 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. It says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So, the raising of the dead. This kind of coincides with the end times, with judgment. And as Jesus says, all live to him. This is the difficult point that the Sadducees would have to understand, that they would have to wrestle with. Now, this is true on any of the difficult points that we wrestle with as well. The difficulties that on the positions that we take are going to be there. You know, the Sadducees, they did not believe in the resurrection, but they followed the law of Moses a little bit more closely. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection, but they added on to Moses. There was differences within their positions. The ways and understanding of God is higher than the wisdom of men. And Jesus, Jesus is challenging the Sadducees by using the words of God. And this needs to be a sticking point for us today. When we challenge something, it needs to be with the words of God. Just like then, there are many areas that we're going to fall short in our understanding 
in our terminologies and our beliefs. There's going to be divisions that come. I guarantee you, with 65 people in here, not every person is going to share the exact same way of beliefs. There are divisions even within this body. The main things are the main things, and we keep it that way. But those minor things do cause divisions, unfortunately. Too often, we rely um, on other things rather than Scripture. When we think about theology, every Christian theology, every form of it, every branch of it, uses Scripture for proof texting. They have their systems of belief. They have their talking points. They have their confessions, their doctrines. They have their popular people, their professors, their scholars, their books. They have all of these things. And it's easy to go to those talking points to challenge others. But what Jesus does is very interesting. He takes the Sadducees and he meets them where they're at with the word of God. They're strict in how they are following Moses, so he takes them back to Moses and what is said to Moses. And he uses the word of God and he leaves them to wrestle with what God has said. He meets them with where they're at and challenges them to listen to the authority of God. As Christians, we should never think that we have fully arrived in our understanding. And as I practiced this this week, a funny thing happened. It's funny because it's hard. We should never think that we have fully arrived. And if Elaine was here, she'd be the first one to say that I haven't arrived. <laughs> and it just popped into my head, and it made me laugh, but then it made me sad and, and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, when we think those thoughts, we get complacent in our faith. We become like Pharisees in our faith. So we strive to continue to wrestle. We don't ignore difficult passages because every theology has difficult passages, Instead, we dive deeper, and we, we are like iron to one another, and we try to build each other up in the Word of God. But to do that, we need to be more involved than just a Sunday morning. We need to take discipleship a lot more seriously in this body, in our lives, to where we're walking through life with others, where we have accountability to help keep us on the, on the narrow path. We need to be humble in our approaches to the word, marveling at who God is, what he has done, and what he has said. Because he is higher than the other loyalties that we could have on this earth. And he is going to bring a forward a resurrection to the everlasting. And all live to him. He is our authority. He is the one that we have loyalty to. to. And we need to render to God what is God's. That is our life. That is our worship. That is our service. Let's pray. Father, as we continue to go through Luke, I thank you for how you instruct your disciples. I thank you for how you give examples of how you meet people where they're at. Lord, you could easily just claim your authority 
and demand things. But Lord, you allow us to wrestle. I'm thankful that you are open, that we can come to you with our questions. Even when we might not have the best motives. Lord, your, author your authority is secure. As we said last week in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Lord, we praise you that you are in charge, not us. We praise you that you have the last word. Lord, I pray that you would help us to marvel at your word. That we can understand the divisions that we have a little bit better. And that we would not be afraid. But we would have the conversations. And we would continue to grow. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your justice. I praise you for my brothers and sisters that are here or listening through Zoom. Lord, we are a church body that desires you. And I pray that your spirit would continue to conform us into the image of your son as we bear your image to this dark world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.